Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. You can open your Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis this morning. Book of Genesis, we're still in chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 17 today, Genesis 9, 8 through 17. <clears throat> and um, I wonder what, what you would do today if you knew that the world was going to end tomorrow. If you knew the world was going to end tomorrow, what would you make sure that you did today? Martin Luther was reported to have said that he would plant an apple tree. Now that has actually been debunked. I've, I've come to understand that Luther actually didn't say that. It's one of those quotes that gets popular associated with somebody, but apparently he didn't say that. I don't know if somebody did, but it, it's kind of a fascinating statement. It doesn't really matter. Is that something that you would do? If you knew that the world was gonna end tomorrow, would you plant a tree? Uh, it sounds probably kind of odd to us. I think most of us would probably maybe apologize to some people that we knew we had offended, or maybe some of us would sell all our things and give to the poor, although I'm not sure exactly what good that would do on the last day, but maybe we would be inclined to do that. Uh, hopefully a lot of us would want to share the gospel with others, maybe a little more bold about that, but how many of us would um, plant a tree? I'm not sure that that's what I would do, but I will say this, I do understand why somebody would want to do that. As a result of studying this passage this morning in Genesis chapter 9, 8 through 17, we are again going through this sermon series, The Gospel According to Genesis. For the last few weeks we've been this, uh, studying this uh, account of the flood and the story of Noah. And so we have seen the flood come upon the earth and destroy every living thing. We have seen God's grace in saving Noah and his family and all the animals. Uh, last week we saw that the rain stopped, the floodwaters receded, the mountaintops emerged, the ark came to a rest, and out from it came Noah, his family, and all the animals to begin a new beginning, to start over um, as God in his grace gives humanity a second chance. That's what we looked at last week. And now on the heels of that, what we're seeing is the very next thing God does is that he comes to Noah and he makes a covenant with him. He enters into covenant relationship. Now, that word covenant is not one that we use super frequently, I think, in our daily routine lives today, but it is an extremely monumentally important word uh, in the Bible, very important to understand if we're going to really get the gospel. And so that's kind of our theme today and what we're going to think about is our covenant Lord here from Genesis 9, 8 through 17. So if you're able to stand, please do that. I'm going to read this relatively short passage, a little shorter than the passages I've been reading the last few weeks anyway. Genesis 9, <clears throat> 8 through 17. This is God now speaking to Noah after the flood, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. 
I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is seen in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Lord God, again we pray, please open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your inerrant and inspired word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, covenant. What do we do with this thing called covenant? I I hope you noticed the repetition in that passage. Uh, The word covenant showed up rather frequently. In fact, it showed up seven times. Seven, the perfect number. Not sure if that was necessarily supposed to be symbolic for us, but it does show up seven times. So the first thing we want to consider here is what is the nature of the covenant? In other words, what, what is it? What is this thing called covenant? Here in Presbyterian circles, we, we love covenants. Uh, we see covenants everywhere. We talk a lot about them. Our university, PCA University, is called Covenant College. Our seminary is called Covenant Seminary. So we make a big deal out of covenants, but I think a lot of people refer to a covenant without really knowing what it is. Not only does it appear here seven times in the text, but the word, the Hebrew word for covenant, shows up almost 300 times in the Old Testament. So that should give you a hint that this is something significant that should warrant our attention. So here we see at the very beginning the word shows up. Um, verse 8, God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth. God establishes a covenant. Now, this is not the first time that the word covenant appears. Actually, it showed up in chapter 6, verse 18. There was just a passing reference to God's covenant with Noah. Um, but here in chapter 9, it's giving more extended treatment. So we could say this is the kind of first place in the scriptures where significant attention is given to a covenant and what it is and how it's ad- administrated. Um, but although this is the first time the covenant is really given extensive treatment, it's, it's actually not the first time we have the idea of a covenant. It's not the first time a covenant actually appears in the scriptures. In fact, we go back to the very beginning of the creation story, and we know that there was a covenant because Hosea tells us this in chapter 6, verse 7. He says, referring to Israel, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant where they dealt, or there they dealt faithlessly with me. So what Hosea is saying is that Adam transgressed a covenant. In other words, God entered into a covenant with Adam. So from the very beginning of the creation biblical story, we've got a covenant. Now, this covenant with Adam is what is often called the covenant of works. 
You remember God entered into relationship with Adam. He told Adam, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but there is one tree that you should not eat from. Um, but, you know, if, if you don't eat of that, you, you will live. If you do eat of that, you will die. That, that's, that's a covenant that God is entering into here with Adam. And as we know, Adam failed that covenant. He did exactly what God told him not to do. He didn't comply with the stipulations of the covenant, and that's what plunged the world into sin. So we have covenant at the very beginning of the scriptures, even though the word is not used in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Here we have the word used repeatedly in Genesis 9. So again, what is it? What is this thing called covenant, and I think it might be helpful to understand what a covenant is by considering why a covenant would be needed. And our confession of faith actually helps us with that, I think, in chapter 7 of the confession. And it says this, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by or or except by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. So what this passage is saying, if you go back to the very beginning, I think this is what's really key here, is the distance between God and the creature is so great. There's such an enormous gulf between God and his creatures, and I don't even mean, and I don't think the confession necessarily means here a gulf that exists as a result of our sin. We're just talking the gulf that exists because God is infinite and we are finite. We're talking about a gulf that exists because according to Psalm 113, God is seated on high and he looks down on the earth. He is the transcendent God who in one sense is very far away, as Jeremiah says. Isaiah 40 says the nations are less than nothing. We're like dust on the scales compared to God. Acts 17 says God does not live in temples as if he needed anything. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. He's the transcendent, holy, exalted God. And the distance is so great that you and I would have absolutely no hope of ever knowing him or ever having a relationship with him unless he chose to pursue us, to condescend and enter into relationship with us unless he chose to come after us. And the way he does this, the mechanism that he has chosen to use to make that happen is a covenant. Friends, without a covenant, there is no way we ever have relationship with God. There's no gospel. There's no hope of of knowing him, knowing what he wants from us, knowing how we can serve and please him, Apart from covenant, it's impossible. The distance is so great, God has chosen. Here's how I'm going to do it. Here's how I'm going to reach out to my people. The good news here, friends, is that God has no need of us. He has no obligation to enter into a relationship with us. But he does it anyway. He wants to. He wants relationship with you. It's like imagine you're a peasant working in the fields in 15th century England let's say and you're in the lowest of the lowest class and you're working hard and and you know there's a king in the land you've heard about him 
You've never seen him. You certainly don't ever expect to meet him. You know he's in a palace somewhere far away. His life is completely different than yours, and you're working away. And then one day, a horse gallops up, and a guy gets off the horse and comes to you and says, "Um, I want you to know that the king knows who you are. And in fact, he wants to know you better. He wants relationship with you. He wants to be your friend. He wants you to know him, and he wants to know you. That's at the heartbeat of the covenant. That's what the covenant is about. The king of the universe wants relationship with you and me as his creatures and as his servants. So let's see what kind of details we can pull out of this about uh, what a covenant is. First of all, if you look at verse 11, very beginning of verse 11, what we'll see here is that uh, one thing that constitutes a covenant is that it is initiated by God. Um, Verse 11, I establish my covenant. This is a covenant that belongs to God, doesn't belong to us, but see God is the one taking initiative. Uh, Throughout this passage, it's God who's acting, it's God who's initiating, it's God who's reaching out. So covenants in the Bible are always initiated by God. But secondly, they also always involve a promise. You see that at the second part of verse 11. God enters into covenant and then says, Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That's his promise. I'm entering into covenant, and, you know, if if you've got to only choose one word for a covenant promise is about as good as you can get. I mean, it falls way short of all that there is entailed in a covenant, but, but promise is pretty good, and that's what God is doing here. And he's saying, I destroyed the earth in a flood, but I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to send a flood to destroy every living thing as I once did. There's a promise, always a promise in the covenant. And then lastly, we see <clears throat> that it is everlasting And you see that in verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. So covenants are are enduring. They're permanent. They have lasting value. They're they're everlasting. They're not fleeting. They don't come and go uh, in the scriptures. So there's a few clues here about what a covenant is. Now, you can go throughout the scriptures and you'll find other clues about what a covenant is to kind of flesh out the whole picture. Um, but, you know, we might say a covenant is kind of like an alliance. I mean, that's, that's kind of true. It's, it's kind of like a treaty. That's kind of true also. It's kind of an arrangement of some sort. Some people say it's like a contract. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a contract, Um, The reason why contract is not the best word is because a contract is so impersonal. Now, when you enter into a contract with somebody with legal documentation, you generally, mostly, don't have a loving relationship with whoever it is you have a contract with. I guess it's possible. Most often, that certainly doesn't make a contract. (laughs) A contract is all law and stipulation. There's no love. There's nothing personal about it. The covenant is personal. But the covenant does also have stipulations and requirements, so some people compare the covenant to a marriage. And that's kind of good, too, and the Bible does call marriage a covenant. It is a kind of a covenant, but even earthly marriage doesn't entail everything that's true about a covenant. 
One of the ways a marriage falls short is that a marriage is between two equal parties, a man and a woman. But with a covenant, you have a greater party, God, entering into a lesser party, that is, the creature. And so even a marriage doesn't quite get to the fullest extent of what a covenant is, although they make progress. There's elements of these things, contract and marriage, that helps us understand what a covenant is. I'm gonna define it this way, and you can nitpick on this, and I I know it's imperfect, and we could add more to this, but but here's what I'm gonna say. A covenant is a sovereignly initiated relationship or bond where God pledges himself to the creature in mutual loyalty. That's a good start, I think, for what a covenant is. Now, this doesn't mention stipulations, requirements, because the covenant here with Noah doesn't actually mention stipulations and requirements. We get to other covenants and we see those fleshed out. But for our purposes here, um, I think that's a good start as to what a covenant is. Now, this is as good time as any, I think, in history to, to, to think carefully about what a covenant is because in our world there's, there's a lot of anxiety, isn't there, about the instability of things in, in the world. The world just sometimes seems like it's just teetering out of control. And a lot of us are, are worried about the, the church and the future of the church. And will the church get, get uh, you know, eliminated? Will it get stomped out by larger governmental nefarious forces in the world? And some of you might have worries about your own faith. You might be thinking, I don't know if I can persevere. I don't know if I can last. What's going to happen to my faith? Will I persevere to the end? And so maybe that's you. You're just overwhelmed with anxiety. Friends, the covenant is here to soothe your anxiety, to help you to rest. Because what the covenant is telling us is that that your future as a Christian and the church's future in this world is not so much dependent on the promises that you've made to God, but it depends on the promise that God has made to you. That this is the engine that is driving things forward in God's redemptive history. It's not us as human beings telling God what we're going to do and then working hard to fulfill everything that we're going to do for God, although to have those desires and inclinations is certainly a, a good thing, but that's not what makes it happen. What makes it happen is God and his promises, and that's what a covenant is, and covenants have been here from the beginning. They go throughout scripture. God is constantly saying, here's what I'm going to do, and he always does what he says he's going to do. Sinclair Ferguson says this, God is a covenant-making, covenant-remembering, and covenant-keeping God. If you have never thought of him in these terms, then you have not yet begun to think about him in the way he wants you to. You probably think of God as loving, probably think of him as holy, think of him as merciful. Those are good things. You should think of him that way. Do you think of him as a covenant-making, covenant-remembering, and covenant-keeping God? Well, you should. And if you do, I think you'll find that you're a lot less anxious in this world than you used to be. That's the nature of a covenant. But now the next thing is the recipients of the covenant. That is who, with whom does God make this covenant well I've already referred to Adam God made this covenant with with Adam and and by the way that that is called a covenant of works where God told Adam if he obeyed him that he would live but again we know Adam failed that covenant failed the stipulations of the covenant of works that necessitated the covenant of grace 
And so that covenant of grace is God's promise to send a descendant, the seed of the woman, promised in Genesis 3.15, which we've been thinking about a lot, and we know that that's fulfilled in Jesus, and so Jesus is the covenant keeper. Adam was a covenant breaker. You and I are covenant breakers. Jesus, thank God, comes and lives as a covenant keeper. And so all of Scripture is kind of like an unfolding then of this covenant of grace. And so we'll see individual covenants kind of come along throughout Scripture. There's a covenant with Abraham that we see in Genesis 17. There's a covenant with Moses that we'll see in the book of Exodus. There's a covenant with David in 2 Samuel. Uh, Of course, there's a new covenant, which is referring to the work of, of Jesus in the New Testament. But before all of those covenants, we have this covenant with Noah. And sometimes it's called the Noahic covenant. This is what theologians like to do. They take first names, proper names, and turn them into adjectives. They love to do that. Paul is Pauline. Noah is Noahic. And so we're talking here in Genesis 9 about the Noahic covenant. And the Noahic covenant is a little different than many of the other covenants in the scriptures uh, in, in that the Noahic covenant is a, is a covenant of sometimes it's called a common grace covenant. It, it's not just a redemptive covenant. It, it's a covenant of God's grace and love and commitment to the whole world. And so as we look to Genesis, uh, John 3.16, God so loved the world, we could say probably has its basis in this covenant with the world. Um, So uh, let's see, how how does this flesh out in this text? How do we see God committing himself to the world? Who are the recipients of the covenant? First of all, you see that Noah and his family, first of all, verse 9, are recipients of the covenant promise. Again, I will establish my covenant, verse 9, with you, and your offspring, and your descendants, and your children, And so here we see this repeated theme throughout the scriptures, God making covenants not just with isolated individuals, but with with groups, with a nation, the nation of Israel, for instance, with families. In the scriptures, the covenants are family-centered covenants. That's very important to understand, and if I may just on a slight tangent, make a remark here that again this is one of the reasons why we believe it's important to baptize households not just individuals if the sign of the covenant is baptism and if covenant is made with families it makes sense that we would therefore baptize families not just those who profess faith in Christ, mom and dad, but also their descendants and their children. This covenant is made with Noah and his descendants, not just with Noah. Second thing we see is that, now here's where we get to this idea of God covenanting with the whole world, and we see that God enters into covenant with the animals. Look at this in verse 10. The covenant that God is establishing is with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, every beast of the earth. And this is then repeated throughout. Verse 12, with every living creature. Verse 15, a covenant between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Verse 16, everlasting covenant between you and every living creature. 
It's not hard to get the point here. God has made a covenant with every living creature, and that calls, includes all the animals in the world. Um, Abraham Lincoln is noted as saying this. I, I think this is a reliable quote from Abraham Lincoln. I care not much for a man's religion whose dog and cat are not the better for it. What an interesting way to evaluate a religion. Does it, does it provide any hope for my dog? <laughs> that, that's one thing that might cause me to believe in your religion. If it has room in it for my cat. That's what Abraham Lincoln is saying. And that's what the scriptures would tell us. That in the Christian religion, there is care for the animals. There's concern for every living thing on the earth. It is a mark of godliness and righteousness to be a person who loves and cares for animals. Uh, you, you can read later Psalm 104. <coughs> Psalm 104, it talks about God's care for the animals. And, and from that, we can get some clues about how we should care for the animals. That is, we should make sure that animals are free from hunger and thirst. We should make sure that animals have appropriate shelter. Uh, we should make sure that animals, as much as possible, have the freedom to display normal behavior. You know, birds should be able to sing. Dogs should be able to run. We should accommodate that as best as possible. We should make sure animals are free from fear. We should make sure that animals receive prevention and treatment of injury and, and disease. That, that's, that's what God does, according to Psalm 104. And this is the God who has entered into covenant with animals. This is what we should do too. We should be people who love and care for animals. It doesn't mean you have to have a dog or a cat, <laughs> but we should have a high regard for the animals. Now that's limited, however, by the fact that men and women are created in the image of God and animals aren't. So there is much teaching going on today that would suggest that animals have the exact same value as a human being, and that's not true. That's not biblical. We don't believe that as Christians. And in fact, if you would have to make a choice between saving a human being or saving your dog, even if that human being is your worst enemy, you better choose the human being. You better choose the person made in the image of God and not your dog. Sorry, but people made in the image of God have more value in the eyes of God than, than animals. Nonetheless, God has entered into covenant relationship with the animals. They are a recipient of the covenant. And the last thing we see is that God enters into covenant relationship with the earth. Maybe that sounds surprising to you, but that's what it says at the end of verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. That's why it might make sense to plant a tree if this were the last day in history. Because the earth is going to continue. The trees are going to continue into the eternal future age. God has committed himself to the earth. Now this can raise a lot of questions about how we should care for the earth, right? And uh, should point us in the direction of certain environmental concerns. Climate change is a big deal in our world and in our politics. And uh, it's a very complicated issue. 
and uh, I don't consider myself really qualified to assess all the data that is out there about climate change. I will say this, that though the scriptures tell us that we are to take dominion of the earth, that is not an excuse to destroy the earth. We are to care for the earth. We are to be stewards of the environment and of nature. We are not to just pave over the entire earth with cement and concrete. We should be concerned about the condition of the earth and at the same time, I don't think it's possible for humankind to destroy the earth. As the climate change people will sometimes say, we're going to destroy the earth. No, we're not. God has made a covenant with the earth. God is committed to the earth. If you look at chapter 8, verse 22, the very end of the previous chapter, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. There is a promise from God that the earth will continue. We care for the earth, we love the earth, but we don't worship the earth. Don't call the earth Mother Earth. The earth is not your mother. The earth is not your father. God is your father, but he has created the earth and given us a charge to care for the earth. Careful distinction. And one reason we should care for it is because it's going to be our eternal home, brothers and sisters. Second Peter tells us this. According to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, <clears throat> the covenant is made with Noah and his family, households, it's made with animals, it's made with the earth. It's a common grace covenant with the whole world. Last thing we want to consider is the sign of the covenant. Covenants, particularly in the scriptures, are very often accompanied by signs. Now, a very obvious example of that would be marriage. The sign of the marriage covenant is, is a wedding ring. So we all are familiar with that. That's not commanded in Scripture, but it's a common sign of a covenant. Uh, in Genesis 17, we see circumcision is the sign <coughs> of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And <coughs> excuse me, here in Genesis 9, it's a rainbow that is the sign of God's covenant with Noah. Verses 12 through 14, God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Here's the sign. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So notice that the text here says bow. It doesn't say rainbow. It says bow. The Hebrew word is bow. And in fact, that image, that word, is very often used for uh, a bow as it is used as a weapon, like a, a, a bow and arrow that you would use. And when you think of a, a rainbow, a rainbow is kind of a, a, a bow in that sense, but in the ancient Near East, that bow would have been considered an instrument of warfare. And so we know that the flood has just ended. God has sent that flood onto the earth and I think we could consider that that flood was God's warfare against humanity. The flood was God's weapon of destruction against the wickedness of humankind. But now the waters have abated. The rain has stopped. God is entering into covenant with Noah. And he says the sign of this covenant now is this bow. And the bow is up in the sky. And it's like what God is saying is, this bow that symbolizes my, <clears throat> my anger, my hostility against humankind, like God is saying, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang it up. I'm going to hang it up in the sky. I'm going to lay it aside. 
And that accompanies the promise here that God has made that he's never again gonna send a flood on the earth to destroy the earth. His, he, he, it's not that there's never gonna be a judgment on the earth. It's not that this means that God doesn't have anger against sin, but he's never again going to send a flood like he did before. And the bow in the sky, it's a bow in the clouds, that's what lends this meaning of rainbow. After the rain, the clouds are still in the sky. You can see kind of rain clouds, but the sun is beginning to peak out. And so with this bow, then we see this development of, of a rainbow. And what God says is that when he sees that bow, he's gonna remember his promise. It's not that God forgot it, but this is what covenant is. It's God always going back to what he promised he was going to do. And he's made a promise not to send the flood, and the bow is a sign of that. Now, we know that <clears throat> since the days of Noah, um, that although God has not sent a flood, he's been faithful to that promise, we do know that hostility on the earth continues, right, throughout the centuries. Hostility has continued because sin still reigns in the hearts of men and women, <clears throat> and that is a situation that can only be resolved by the coming of Jesus, which Colossians 1 tells us, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus comes, he lays down his life, and he makes peace for all those who will turn to him in faith, which is the beginning of the ultimate end of all hostilities on this earth. So by way of encouragement, <clears throat> as I close here today, um, let me just say this, friends. You know, there is, no, there is no rainbow without a storm. In your life right now, you might feel like there's a storm going on. Uh, you might feel like in your life, it's always raining. <laughs> but friends, be, be encouraged that with the rain comes a rainbow. With the storm, which every storm ceases, when the storm is over, the rainbow appears, and the rainbow is a testimony to you, and I think it still endures today, that whenever you see a rainbow, remember that God's promises are always faithful, that he is always trustworthy, that he is a promise keeper who never forgets. He remembers his covenant forever, and that promise is to you. The rain will stop one day. The storms will cease one day, and you will know that it has been worth it to trust this God who makes promises to you. There's no better way, I think, to conclude the service than by <clears throat> going to the Lord's Supper where Jesus says that this is the covenant in my blood. And so let's pray and sing, and then we'll come to the table and partake of the body and blood of our Savior. Father, <clears throat> thank you for your faithfulness, your dependence. Thank you that you're a promise-keeping God. We acknowledge, Lord, that we are promise-breakers, but we thank you that you're a promise-keeper. And the greatest promise you've kept is the one to send a Savior for us. We're thankful for him and pray, Lord, that our communion with him would be sweet and encouraging as we come to your table. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.